hope you are made to feel welcome while you uh, worship with us here at Redeemer. Glad to be your neighbors. Want to also uh, take a point of personal privilege and say congratulations to my parents for 40 years of marriage together. And uh, it's a great privilege uh, to have the celebration with you. And uh, they've been a picture of just hard work and devotion and love and generosity to me. And especially in these last five to seven years, I've just seen a wonderful spiritual growth in them that is has also invigorated my own walk with Christ. So I'm very, very thankful for this. Uh, you also, if you stop by to say, uh, to wish them well, you'll notice some pictures. And uh, there, there are some neat pictures, entertaining pictures even. And my dad was 38 when he married my mom, the same age I am now. He is slightly skinnier, I noticed, in those pictures. Uh, but he will point out to you that it is I who look like him. It's not the other way around. It's not that he looks like me. I look like him. So you'll notice that in the pictures, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, so thanks, Mom and Dad. We love you. Now, together, the people of God, I want us to turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians is a wonderful book, probably the first book that Paul wrote to one of the churches that he had part in planting, uh, one of the earliest books of the New Testament, and it strikes at the heart of what is so important that uh, it be taught clearly and upheld. In fact, he uses the language in the beginning of chapter 5 to stand firm against the tides that would seek to move the message of the gospel. Very simply, the book of Galatians is about bringing clarity to the fact that we are only made right with God by the work of Christ done on our behalf by faith alone in Christ. It cannot be attained by good works that we do, by obedience, by the family we belong to, how much money we give. Uh, you name all the external factors that people often use to assess whether they're right with God. Those things are not the way we are right with God. Only Jesus can make us right with God and trust and faith in him alone. And that's what Paul writes to correct because this church started out strong. They believed that message, but people crept in and said, you know, you can't be right with God just believing in Jesus. You've got to also do this or that or the other thing. And they were hindered in their run. Their run, meaning their spiritual journey, because they started to trust other stuff. Now, let's remember what legalism is because everyone's generally a recovering legalist. Legalism is basically trust in being able to keep rules to be right with God, to, or to be more loved by God even. Legalism is also a way to make ourselves feel spiritually or morally superior to others. It's almost entirely external. The Pharisees had actually developed 613 extra-biblical rules to help people be more holy. 365 of the 613 were negative commands, and 248 were positive laws, but just this whole system of legalism to be right with God. Who could see through that fog to see the only right way, the only way we can be right with God, Christ? Too much burdening them. One author says, well, that the legalist satisfies himself or herself, for that matter, by adhering to a strict external code of do's and don'ts, which he or she imagines demonstrates his or her self-righteous suitability for heaven. Paul writes to combat legalism, and he clearly outlines how a person can be made right with God over and over again through this great letter. By the time we come to chapter 5, where we are picking up in the midst of today, he has turned from the, the, the fact of our being saved by grace through faith in Christ, he's turning from that to how we live in light of that, what our life looks like now that we trust in Christ, and we have been given freedom. 
And he explains what freedom is, because certainly someone's going to come along and say, now wait a minute, if you go tell all those people that they could be right with God by faith in Christ alone and his work alone, they're going to go do whatever they want. It's going to be a free-for-all. By giving these rules, you know, we keep people in line, they may be saying, at least in their heart, if not externally. So Paul forecasts that this would be an objection. He even recognizes it might be a temptation for those who are genuinely trusting in Christ. They may say, well, I can do whatever I want, because ultimately I'm all right with God because of what Christ did. So he writes exactly what he writes here for that very reason. Hear now God's word. In Galatians, we'll start at verse 13 of chapter 5. I'll read to verse 18, though our focus will be primarily on verses 13 through 15 this morning. Hear God's holy, inspired, infallible word. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you this morning for freeing us from bondage to guilt and shame. We worship you for freeing us from the futile necessity of earning our peace with you. You have freed us from the fear of your judgment. You have done all this. You have brought us this peace and freedom by the blood of your sinless Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us, Heavenly Father, to not turn this manifold freedom that you have provided into a license for sin. Grant us your sustaining grace. This day we pray. Amen. You remember back to verse 1, chapter 5, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now we come to verse 13, and he refers again to this term, this concept, freedom. He says, but you were called to freedom, brothers. Now he's not speaking to the teachers, the Judaizers who had crept in and distorted the gospel. He's talking to brothers. He's saying that this could be a tendency for you, what I'm about to say and warn you of, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Remember, freedom. But I think it's important for us to consider what it means biblically again as we look at this passage, what freedom, Christian freedom is. What is the freedom we have in Christ? All kinds of thoughts come to mind when we speak of freedom in our day. You can imagine. Uh, You hear freedom to describe political or social freedom, being freed from oppressions that those systems can bring. You think of free trade, no tariffs or taxes. Free enterprise, the word is used. The concept is put forth. Uh, Roosevelt wrote of the four essential human freedoms, something that gave great impetus to our nation in its earlier years, at least earlier to us. He said freedom of speech, freedom to worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear. These are things that were celebrated in our own country as freedoms. Think of all the songs that have been written about the freedom we have as Americans. Our national anthem even says that we're the land of the free and the home of the brave. In all these cases, freedom 
doesn't practically translate to a free-for-all. No one believes that. No one could actually live that way. They all have certain limitations. And so, likewise, when we think of our freedom in Christ, we ought to ask the question of Scripture, what is Christian freedom? Lest we pendulum from this legalistic way of thinking all the way over to license or libertinism, utter liberty to do whatever we want. John Stott says it well in his wonderful commentary. He says, what sort of freedom is Christian freedom? Primarily, it is a freedom of conscience. According to the Christian gospel, no man is truly free until Jesus Christ has rid him of the burden of his guilt. One of the most picturesque moments in the whole New Testament, I believe, is what we speak of as Palm Sunday. Because it's such a picture of the distorting view we have of Jesus. You have these people cheering as he comes in, cheering that he's on the foal of a donkey, putting down their cloths, laying down palm branches, a great celebration, when in fact we know that he's going into Jerusalem to die, to be the sacrifice. So it's a celebration about Jesus coming, but there's a confusion, I believe, about why he is coming at all. You see, I think most of them, or many of them anyways, thought that he was some political leader, some cultural leader, if, if, if you will, that would bring freedom from the Roman tyranny that was over them. So in the minds of many who were celebrating his coming, their thought was ultimate freedom was to be had by this person freeing them physically, politically, socially, whatever. When in fact, that's, that kind of freedom is just so short, it's so, it's so weak, it's so lame compared to what real freedom is. And that's the irony of the picture, isn't it? Jesus was coming to free. He was coming to liberate in the ultimate sense of liberty, which is freedom of conscience. And what I mean by that very specifically is we no longer have on our conscience the guilt of our sin. It's taken from us and put upon Christ himself who goes in and sacrifices himself for us. Our conscience is free of all the guilt and shame that would constantly be upon us or should be upon us if our sin's still there. But now we're free from that and that opens up everything to us. Freedom, Christian freedom, is that kind of freedom. No one's really free in any sense unless they're free in Christ first. The passage before us begins this way, for you were called to freedom, brothers. It puts the onus on God. God called us to freedom. That means he is the one who initiated it. He's the one who actualized this freedom we have. Living in it, that's the process of, of living in connection with what God has done. That's what we're speaking of. But make no mistake, we didn't gain this freedom for ourselves. The chains fell off because God took them off. He gave us the freedom. He called us, it says, to freedom, brothers. This is foundational. You can't go further in your walk with Christ until you understand this completely. Let's unpack this for a moment before we even head to where the outline lays out our approach. First, let's just understand, we're talking about Christian freedom. Let's talk honestly about what it is not so as to understand what it is. First of all, Christian freedom is not freedom to indulge the flesh. Look what it says in verse 13. After the portion we have read, it says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The flesh. When the Bible speaks of the flesh, it's referring to our fallen sinful nature. That's what we inherited from Adam and Eve and pass on to our children as well. It's, it's a basic bent towards self. Self-centeredness, self-worship, self-provision, self-focus. It's a bent towards meeting our own needs. And you can think of the first sin being about 
being themselves worshipped. It wasn't enough that God was the Holy One. They wanted to be like God and receive praise themselves. It's all about self and worship thereof. The flesh refers to our passions that come from the self-centeredness, the, the things we want to do without control. It's translated sinful nature by the NIV, which is an accurate description of what it is. Our nature, our general nature is, apart from Christ, in renewal of the Holy Spirit, we're sinful. All the movies and all the, the different depictions of mankind is generally good. That, that's really what I call the big lie, because that's not true. Man is not generally good. We have a sinful nature apart from Christ redeeming us. And so when Paul writes, he warns us that don't make your freedom, the fact of your freedom, be an excuse or give opportunity for your flesh, meaning that sinful nature that can rear its head in us, even as believers, once again. Critics of the gospel that Paul preached must have been weighing heavily on this idea of hyper-liberty or libertinism, that you can just do whatever you want now that you're free in Christ. So he speaks very clearly and forcefully that Christian freedom is not, not to indulge the flesh. We're not free to do that. And secondly, we can notice as we look at what freedom means so as to best understand the passage, Christian freedom is not freedom to exploit your neighbor either. It's not an opportunity to indulge the flesh, nor is it something that should harm other people. In other words, we're not just free to do anything to other people. We're not to harm our neighbors. We're not to harm each other. It says in verse 15, uh, in addition to the earlier portion of verse 13 speaking or 14 speaking of you loving your neighbors yourself, reciting the commandment, but look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. It's saying that in your freedom, don't just do anything you want to each other because that will lead to ultimate destruction of each other. It's the picture of a wild animal over a, a, a killed prey and a herd, you know, a whole bunch of, of lions are eating this, uh, eating this prey and they're fighting each other for the next bite and they're biting one another and it looks, it looks like a, it looks like a, a feeding frenzy and that's what the church can look like sometimes when people are biting and devouring and look at the progression. It says bite, devour, consume. That's a progression. If you bite and devour, bite is strike like a snake strikes and bites. Devour is the chewing on, the tearing at the flesh. And then consumption is the ultimate end if you go that road. So we are not free to exploit our neighbors. Let's be clear. But also we can see that Christian freedom is not freedom to disregard the law. There, it might be a pendulum swing that makes us say we're not under the law and people mean it to say that I don't have to pay attention to it or I could ignore it. That's not at all the heart of God in this matter. Our relationship with the law has totally changed. It's no longer this mechanism or the standard we have to meet to be right with God, but it doesn't cease to be a reflection of God's character, nor does it cease to be our standard. Out of love now, out of gratitude we obey God, not to earn salvation, but certainly we still obey God's commands. And that's really what's said in verse 14. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does this mean? He says something similar in Romans, but if you look even at our liturgy, today we recited the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, the first four are Godward. That meaning we should not have other gods before us, not make any graven images of God, uh, not take the name, the, Lord of the, name, uh, the name of the Lord in vain, remember the Sabbath day. Then the following six have to do with our relationships with each other, honoring our mothers and fathers, not murdering, not committing adultery, not stealing, not lying, not coveting. If we would love one another you would fulfill these six commandments. He wants us to obey his commands. 
That's the right response to one who truly has received God's grace. It's a response. And he's telling us, don't let the pendulum swing from freedom to license. God wants us to obey. And you will obey and fulfill the whole law if you love your neighbor as yourself. So much of the adherence to, obedience, uh, to rules and rituals is external. But loving your neighbor, you can't hide that for long. You could fake it for a little while, but not for too long. Loving your neighbor, fulfilling the law. One author said wonderfully, although we cannot gain acceptance by keeping the law, yet once we have been accepted, we shall keep the law out of love for him who has accepted us and has given us his spirit to enable us to keep it. Freedom in Christ isn't freedom to ignore the law. It's freedom to fulfill it, actually. And Christian liberty doesn't involve ignoring God's moral law. It fulfills it from the inside by love. Christian freedom in no way is a free-for-all. In fact, Christian freedom, or the freedom that Christ gives, is not the freedom to sin, but freedom from the penalty and the power of sin and freedom to truly serve him and others. Let's consider that now. First, in verse 13, the word freedom is used. Let's consider it more closely again. We see that faith in Christ grants us freedom from the penalty of sin as we look at the statement that opens, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Uh, this is, we're approaching this out of its context, so let's remember that the ultimate freedom happens first in that we are now freed in Christ from the penalty we deserve for our sins. You say, well, okay, I know that, and it's maybe become a little ho-hum. Don't let it. Stop and think for a moment what it feels like to have a penalty weighing over your head. Uh, think of any number of ways in which this has applied in your life. How about when your dad gets home? That's my parents' 40th anniversary, so I can't say anything more than that. But when your dad gets home. So now you've got from 3.30 approximately to about 6.30 to have this way over you. What's he going to do? What's going to happen? How about you take a test on Tuesday that you didn't prepare for? The grade's not going to come till Thursday. You know you're going to get it. You know they're going to hand it out in front of everybody in the class. Two days of just waiting and wondering. This thing's weighing over your head. A bill's going to come that you can't pay, that you shouldn't have bought something. But it's coming, and it weighs over. It burdens you. Right now, I guarantee someone sitting here, all of us, to some degree, have something that is coming, and it weighs over us. And praise God, I hope for you, that it's not, it's not the ultimate penalty we deserve that that burden has been lifted, that the penalty for your sin has been taken away from you and put squarely on the shoulders of Jesus who faithfully took it to the cross and paid for it so that you now can say you are free from the penalty of your sin. That's the freedom that is spoken of. That's the simplest way to understand it. From it flows all sorts of benefits. But this is the starting point that you truly understand and believe that in Christ you have been given ultimate freedom. All those things that we dread in the here and now are short-lived. The ultimate penalty that hangs over people, and I believe even people who don't know much about what the Bible says, there's a sense of guilt or impending doom or despair that haunts them and haunts many people in the church as well because they have not recognized the totality of what God has provided for us in Christ. So Christian freedom, faith in Christ, grants us this freedom first from the penalty of sin. That's not all. Verse 13, the second portion, it says something that implies a gift we've been given now, this side of the cross, this side of being in, in union with Christ. Faith in Christ grants us freedom 
from the power of sin. So we're free from the penalty, but there's something here and now that makes a great impact on us. That is, you are no longer a slave to your sinful nature. Your sinful nature still has its vestige. It's still there for us to be concerned with, seriously concerned with, but now you've been, as a Christian, been given something else to battle that that you did not have before. So you're not truly anymore a slave to anything but God. And so your sinful flesh may battle, but you've now been given the Spirit of God to battle the flesh. And so we've been given a power over sin that we did not have before Christ. That's what it means by the second portion of verse 13. It says, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So there's an implication made here that you can deny the flesh, which could not be said of someone apart from the Spirit of God. So Paul, writing to his brothers and sisters, understands that they can now say no to the deeds of the flesh that will tempt them. So we now have a freedom to say no that we did not have before. That's a powerful and important freedom that we have in Christ. But look at verse 16. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. You see, that's how we're able to say no to the, to the, to the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and as a result, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. As we walk with the Spirit, as we are in tune with the Spirit of God that indwells with us, primarily through the revelation of His Word in His ministry, the Holy Spirit's ministry, we will be able to not gratify the insatiable flesh. You'll be able to deny it. That's a power that we did not have apart from Christ. It's a power given to us, a freedom given to us because of Christ. Look at verse 17. It outlines for us the flesh's relationship against the Spirit of God that indwells us. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. I have heard over and over from people who become believers, maybe they're two or three years into being a believer, and they come to me and say, I'm miserable. I was not this miserable before. Maybe you know someone like that or that was your experience. That before you became a Christian, there were things that bothered you. And maybe some crisis occurred that God used to cause you to recognize your need of the Savior. But as things have, have grown, many things have come up in your life and you feel like it's more difficult now than it was when you weren't a believer. I've even had some say, I don't know why this is better even. And I want to draw your attention to this. That's not unusual. That happens in our life. And what it is is simply this. The Holy Spirit has opened your eyes now. And you're now seeing things in your life that aren't pleasing to God. And they're, they're assailing you. I mean, they're coming down on you and you're, you're, you're feeling unworthy. And, and maybe even feeling guilt again that's been taken, but you're still feeling it. And now it's more difficult. There's a burden for you there. And that is the picture of the Spirit of God dwelling in you against the flesh, still trying to tempt you or draw you back into it. And I'm not going to kid you, there is a war that goes on in people, every one of us, to varying levels, depending on where you are and what your situation is. But there is a war that goes on between the Spirit and the flesh. The person who's in Christ has the Spirit of God, but their flesh and the vestiges of the flesh remain. And so there's a battle that wages against it. But let me be clear, and we'll see this more as we study on into the next chapter, that God has given you the freedom to be able to see sin defeated. I'm not going to tell you it will be easy. It will be challenging. And you can't just give up the first time you are defeated. You fall off the wagon, so to speak. God's not giving up on you. The work of Christ still is sufficient. But we keep on because the Spirit of God gives us the ability to say no and God never allows us to be tempted beyond which 
he is able to rescue you and provide a way of escape. This is the reality of the Christian life. This is the war that wages. But you are not a slave anymore. You are now able, by the Spirit, to be free from the power of sin, the ultimate power of sin that would seek to destroy you. And the way this plays out the most, without question, is in our relationship with each other. This is the reference to biting and devouring, which must have been going on in this church in Galatia. But it speaks to us as well that the chief way in which we sin is against each other. Uh, It's ultimately always a sin against God, no doubt. But we are so self-centered and so self-focused that it usually manifests itself in trying to get stuff from other people. And before you were a Christian, no matter how altruistic it looked, you were basically living to get something from that relationship. Even the good things you do for someone was so that they would reciprocate in some way. Now, as Christians, we still battle with that. But in Christ, there is a level that is new. There's a power that is new that allows us, because of the unconditional love shown to us by God through Christ, that we can show love to each other that actually is unselfish. I'm not saying every time, but it actually begins to be that way because you've been given the freedom to do that. You're free to love people now. You're free to be real with people because you're free from the power of sin. It doesn't have ultimate hold over you. And when we battle against the Spirit, we grieve the Spirit, as Paul uses the term later, that's the battle we have, the struggle we have. That's real and ever-present until we go home to be with Him. Faith in Christ grants us freedom from the power of sin, but also faith in Christ grants us freedom and the power to serve Him, our Father, and others. What compels us to serve him is not a slavish fear we're trying to earn, but rather the love he's shown us compels us to serve him. We're free to serve him. We did not want to serve him before Christ. We did not want anything but to get away from him. We didn't want anything but for him to go away. But in Christ, now we're free from that notion of fear and shame and hatred towards God. Now we're free to love him because he has expressed it to us first and love his children also because of him. You know, we spoke this morning in the Meet the Pastor class about the purpose of the passing of the peace in our liturgy, and I can't emphasize enough that it is there for an important purpose. The first portion of our liturgy is meeting God, the holy God, hearing our need for a Savior, receiving after confession assurance of our pardon. And then after that, when we know that we have been made right with God through Christ, we now can celebrate that we're right with each other, and we stop and we pause and we shake one another's hands. Being right with God means now we can actually be right with each other. And that's the beauty. That's the passing of the peace that has been shown to us. We now manifest it by sharing it with one another. Look at verse 13, and you can see this this thread of love and service towards God and others woven throughout. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is a passage laden with the outflow of the result of our being put in union with Christ, and it's the way we view our service to God and service of one another. Love is ultimately the ruling principle 
that flows from the gospel of God's grace. And I don't mean the sloppy love that people talk about. Love, love, just let it be love. And they never define what that means. Well, the only true definition of love must include what God has purchased for us in his son. And that's how we understand true love. So when I say love one another, I mean it in light of what God has done for us in Christ. Not just love like let everybody do what they want. That's not love. Love is to sacrifice ourselves for others, just the same way the Lord Jesus did for us. It's interesting, Paul was writing to the Romans later. Galatians is a book written earlier. And he writes to the Romans something almost exactly the same. Listen to what he says in Romans 13. He says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And the reason we love is because of what God has done for us in giving us freedom. Not just for some sloppy reason that you can't define love. It's love because we're free now to love because of what God has done for us. That's the essence of Christian freedom lived out. We know what the fact of it is, as it's displayed in the first four chapters of Galatians. Now in chapter 5, he's starting to unpack what is the nature of it. This is what it looks like. This is how it's lived. It's important that we recognize the two sides of, the, two sides of uh, the extremes we can go, from legalism over here to libertinism or license over here. And it's likened unto a picture where you have heaven and earth. And to get from, from uh, earth to heaven, you have to cross one of two streams. And the first stream is, is deep and it's clear. It's very, uh, it's very uh, pure in its flow. That's legalism. It looks wonderful and clear, but no one can cross it. It's way too devastating. As soon as you step in, you're crushed against the rocks. That's the moralism. It looks clear, looks obvious and pure, but no one can cross it. On the other hand, the other stream is smaller, and it's quite small and looks attractive and easy to cross. It's actually even trickling, but it's loaded with contaminants and pollutants. And anyone who would try to cross it would die of the pollution. You can't cross it by license either, by libertinism either. Neither are the right way to God. But there's a bridge that goes over from earth to heaven, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel, him alone. That's how we are citizens of heaven, by the work of Christ that crosses over both these extremes. And it is in him alone who we trust. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us uh, your word. These verses that we have meditated upon this morning, I pray that you would make real to each brother and sister here today. And for the one who does not know you, I pray that you would convict their heart and draw them to yourself, just as you have done for so many here Lord, help us to be humble in what you have done, for it is you who have called us. We have not called you. We've never called you. You have called us. And Lord, help us with deep gratitude. Live lives that celebrate the freedom in Christ we have. Freedom from the penalty of sin. Thank you, Jesus. Freedom from the power of sin. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the work you're doing in our lives in this regard. And Lord, ultimately, we'll have freedom from the presence of sin one day when we are with you. But in the meantime, Lord, I pray that you'd make us a people who express the reality of our own redemption, our own salvation from our sins by loving each other for real. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.